welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran. This is Ingrid Cochran. I'm your host for History, Culture, Trauma. Thank you so much for joining us today. I want to remind everyone that uh, for this month, we will really be focusing on um, national child prevention, child abuse prevention. And um, we have really examined child abuse in America through the lens of systems. And this was really a a discussion that we had with Dr. Uh, Melissa Merrick, CEO of uh, Prevent Child Abuse America, That really helped us to think through how we have conditions in our country that make our children more susceptible to child abuse and neglect. And so we want to talk about those conditions. Uh, I want to take this time to introduce my co-host, Mr. Matthew Portell, and he is Paces Connections um, Director of Communities. So. Uh, Thank you. And uh, what a great conversation we've started uh, in this last a week about just the the impact of child abuse and how it plays out. I know last week we started just as that individual home, and this week we're looking at community, and next week we're going to look at systems. And um, it's interesting to dig into this this deeply. Um, and as we reflect on the historical context as well as the current situations and how it plays out in the lives of kids, so I'm 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 enjoying these conversations. I am too. And uh, and when we talked last week, um, we did kind of outline the big picture that um, we we focused really on the theorist um, Yuri Bronfenbrenner, who is the father of the social ecological model and his ability to really outline how children are impacted, not just by their families, but their communities, um, policies, the institutions that we have in our country and also our beliefs and values as a whole. Um, and again, um, Bronfenbrenner is one of our um, kind of co-founders when it comes to Head Start. And, um, and his focus is really reflected there in the understanding that children need um, more from schools um, than just education as we think through what it means for a child to develop optimally in this country that there are systems at play and that our institutions as well as our communities and our schools and all, all adults really play a role in the development of all of our children. And this conversation is important because um, one, it helps us to understand that families are not the only component when we think about child abuse and neglect, but that we all play a role. Um, not just um, daycare workers or teachers, but um, really everyone in our ability to create conditions for children that will help them to thrive um, and be resilient. I mean, I think it's interesting enough if we think about a lot of the the conversations that I can remember even as as a young adult young uh, kid and even in, in early adulthood is about individual choice and individuals and doing it things. And if they, if people just pulled themselves up by their bootstraps or this, these mantra and the word grit that is constantly floating around in the field of education, but what we're learning and what we hope the listeners are, are hearing is that 
it is a system. It, it is not just the individual family and individual child and not even just the community, not even just the, the structures, the policies. It's the whole piece. It's the whole socio-ecological model that plays a role. And so, I think as we dig in, and, and if you don't know, if you haven't listened often, I have spent the last 15 years in public education. So, it is where the majority of my professional experience is. And as I began to learn more about the socio-ecological model and all of this, the connectedness between this, not to mention the paces science, um, it was very apparent that we have a lot of work to do. And I think that it is important that we have these conversations about what role do these systems play and the community plays um, in the lives of children. And it, it, what Ingrid, what you just mentioned was it's not just about the teacher. It's not just about the child. It's not just about the family. It's about the system, the whole piece. But of course, next week, we're going to talk more about the system. And now we're talking about that, that community piece. So, I think when we're talking about trauma and the impacts of, of those communities, I think there's also other places. There's churches, there's faith-based communities, there's, uh, there's different aspects to the community that I think we should touch on um, because it is, it is an all-encompassing, um, uh, an all-encompassing area that we have to focus on. Um, we have to look at the community as a primary focus. And if we think about community, we think about, teachers, we think about who's in the community. A lot of times, especially in education, people aren't teaching in the communities that they live. Um, maybe in a rural area, and I think we're going to get into some of that impact too of rural communities and, and the impact of those pieces. But there's a lot to, lot to start digging into. Yeah, so let's dig into it. Um, when we think about communities, we, um, we need to very much consider that the toxic stress that families are encountering, that is really the root cause either um, that they've encountered presently or generationally. So there are some groups who have um, really have been shaped by their ancestors' trauma through what we call historical trauma or intergenerational transmission of trauma. Uh, But what we're really talking about is toxic stress that families have experienced um, historically and presently. And that that toxic stress is coming from somewhere, um, not just inside the home. So it is about where they work, um, where they live, uh, their geography, uh, and obviously those, you know, the experiences of their ancestors. And so when we look at communities across America, we see several things at play here when it comes to why some groups are experiencing more toxic stress than others. Obviously, race and skin color play a, play a part, uh, especially historically, uh, but also poverty. Um, and when we think about kind of even the built environment, the way that our cities look, our counties look, uh, it is largely due to those two issues, race and, and, and poverty. Um, so if we think about community violence, for example, um, gun violence, the drivers of toxic stress within a community are largely due uh, to poverty and, you know, which schools are getting all that they need so that the people in that community can um, be educated and critical thinkers uh, and good citizens. 
uh, and which schools or actually which communities are experiencing higher levels of community violence, which then um, adds to the toxic stress that parents are feeling um, just by being in the space, you know. Uh, so this kind of um, overall low-level toxic stress that people are experiencing um, creates what we call allostatic load. And so allostatic load is um, has an impact, obviously, on our bodies, right? It is really focused on the wear and tear of our DNA. And there's many factors that um, that are at play when it comes to allostatic load. Community violence is a perfect example. So odds are, if I'm a family or a child living in a community with high levels of violence, I'm experiencing high levels of stress uh, just walking in my neighborhood, you know, going to the bus or going to the store. Uh, I am experiencing this high level of stress on an ongoing basis. This leads to allostatic load. It's definitely going to impact my parenting. Um, when we think of survival-based parenting, this is a driver for a great deal of child abuse and neglect. Um, the belief that my environment is dangerous um, will then make me more um, physical with my child. Uh, and there is some historical context there. So um, communities that have high levels of community violence tend to be um, minoritized groups. And so that would be African-American, Latino, uh, and indigenous areas um, or indigenous communities. If we use uh, African-Americans um, as an example, just because their uh, plight in this country is very much documented and very clear, um, when we think about why certain communities um, have more um, African-Americans in them than others. It's largely driven by housing discrimination and redlining and other policies of the past that have carved out areas in our towns. This is the same thing when we think about Chinatowns. And, and this is, again, largely driven by policies and racism. Uh, and so we allow these types of policies to drive um, the shaping of our communities we then say that your school is dependent on tax um, tax breaks that are associated with your 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 housing, uh, and so we have created environments for children that have um, lower housing value that lead to a less likelihood of of home ownership that lead to um, um, a higher likelihood of violence and lower school performance and lower rates of graduation and higher rates of school dropout. All of this leading to areas that have high levels of toxic stress over, over time. And it's, by, it's not a, uh, an, an accident that these areas are uh, full of people who have black and brown skin. And this is, um, and then of course, anyone who's dealing with poverty of any race. And so these types of environments breed toxic stress would then create a higher likelihood of, of abuse and neglect. We need to be able to talk through how these environments uh, came to be. And we also need to be able to acknowledge that the drivers of, of these environments is largely due to the beliefs and values that we have around how we value people living in poverty and how we value people 
who are who are not white. And I think again, going back to 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 my my previous role of thinking about even the integration of schools and how that played out historically and thinking about policies since then that continue to drive this narrative um, and to be utilized to ensure that um, these, these practices continue. For example, zero, uh, zero tolerance. That was an avenue for a lot of schools to utilize to get rid of kids or to not have time for kids. And we know that there was a disproportionality of the brown and black kids that were being put out of school due to zero tolerance. We also look at the environments in which those practices were used, right? And it comes down to what you said, the community based off of the design can increase that anesthetic load and increase that toxic stress and put the body into that, getting into the autonomic nervous system and making sure the nervous system is inflamed and and then they go to then kids go to school and the environment is similar it, it's it doesn't breed safety it doesn't breed inclusion it doesn't breed understanding it just this is the the rigid structure um, kids are punished based off of a dysregulated nervous system and their responses to that dysregulated nervous system um, it, it's just so deep in the layers and then going back to my first comment too about that integration of schools we now know that statistically about 85% of teachers are white, right? Nationally. Um, and that I don't think those matter of fact, those numbers are very similar in most settings where there are children of color. Uh, we know that it's about 15% teachers of color. And we know it's only 2% that are male. And so now we have teachers in schools that can be predominantly be black, black and brown. And admittedly, I was a white male principal in a predominantly black and black and brown school but I had these conversations within my community as well. I, I didn't tell them about this. I listened. Um, and I think that was part of my personal journey and growth. But we have historically pushed out teachers of color in, in communities even uh, of color. And I think we have to be talking about all of these historical contexts because at the end of the day, it's being perpetuated. It's not, this hasn't stopped. Um, these are practices, not something of long ago, but things that we're still seeing today uh, that continue to drive these, um, these structures uh, within the communities uh, that our kids are trying to not necessarily even th thrive, but uh, even in a school setting, just survive. Uh, and I don't mean from the community or the parents, I mean in the setting of school. Uh, a lot of kids... It is not a safe place, um, and it's not just suspensions. It's physical, physical restraint. It's seclusion. Um, there's a lot of practices that are being used uh, that perpetuate the problem. Yeah, and and when we come to the issue of community, this is where we begin to really see how identity um, is really impactful. This internalized identity that that children get from their environments that generally will come into play around age six to 11, where they are aware of their environment and they're aware of issues like gender and race, right? They, gender and race is something they begin to be aware of around age three. But by the time we get to the point where we're interacting with our community and we have this higher level of awareness um, and higher uh, cognitive, cognitive functioning, 
then by the time we get to age six, we are aware of social dynamics at play. And so six to 11 years old, I am forming my identity either based on how competent I am or how uh, the beginnings of what we call an inferiority complex. And so this inferiority complex is driven by, or competence, is driven by my interactions at this age. And so where are kids at this age? They're at home and in school and in their neighborhoods. And so if I look around my neighborhood and I see um, high levels of crime or that it is um, what we would consider uh, impoverished, um, and I see that everybody in my neighborhood looks like me, um, then what conclusions do I draw as a child about my identity, about the identity of those who look like me? Uh, It would and could lead to inferiority complexes around several things. Um, This is the same in school environments. The school environment has been studied probably more so than any other environment. We're very aware of the differences in how teachers treat children of color, um, boys versus girls, um, children living in poverty versus children of affluence. And so um, children are also getting these messages from their caregivers around, you know, who is the teacher paying attention to? Who does the teacher criticize more? Uh, Who is the teacher uh, praising, uh, smiling at? You know, all of these different cues that because children are little emotional thermometers. And so their feelers are out not for um, exactly what is said, but also what is not said and the emotional cues that adults are giving out in their space. So uh, if a teacher is biased, this will become evident in the way that the teacher interacts with the child. The child is going to feel it. Even if they don't have words for it, they'll feel it. And this uh, emerging sense of identity um, from the school setting, from the community, from the home is going to be very driven by the treatment they, they receive in these settings and how they internalize that around gender, race, and other uh, demographics. Um, and so it's really important when we think about the community level, and especially in schools, that we just tell the truth about our history uh, so that we don't leave children to um, their limited understanding of, of the systems to believe that the, the things that they are seeing is based on the skin color, that I'm living in this neighborhood because I'm black or I am ex- experiencing these issues because I'm a girl or the intersection of it. I'm experiencing these issues because I'm a black boy. Well, no, you're experiencing these issues because the systems in this country uh, are geared to prop up certain groups and tear down others. And these systems have a very clear history with clear policies that shape them. And that should be something that's taught in schools so that um, children do not fall back on this um, feelings or issues of inferiority in, in their development. Well, and I mean, in our state, we're both from the state of Tennessee. Um, there's laws that are in place right now that are tr- people are trying to prevent those conversations and not even necessarily they are the depth of that conversation. But even, for example, reading a book of Rosa Parks is now been attempted to be banned within the state that we live. And that is even on the basic level of our history. I mean, 
And I think that tells you how deeply rooted it is. And, and I want to, I, I want to, I want to reinforce trauma-informed education is something that is, is, is becoming a very hot topic to talk about. And I think that we have to reiterate in this space, especially of education, if you're not having conversations like Ingrid and I right now are having, then we're missing the foundation of why we need trauma-informed education. And, and for those of you who are familiar with SAMHSA, and it is a very common principles used in trauma-informed work and in education. People use it as, I know it's not what it was originally designed for, um, but there, there are, there's two pieces at the very end. One is empowering voice and choice, and the second one is cultural, historical, and gender issues within the context of, a, of whatever field you're in. And I think we have to have these conversations, and equally important are five and six of those six principles, that voice and choice, giving our kids voice, because by design, from the moment they walk into school, they are told to be quiet and listen. And yet, what are we wanting them to be quiet and listen to and for if we're not building the impact of their voice? Now, when I was the principal, we had a structure that we taught. It was the side, it, it, basically there was eight habits and one is find your voice. And interesting enough, it was the one that our kids connected to the most. Um, and I think that it's really important that we look at why we have had structures in education for literally hundreds of years that have barely changed just because we put an iPad in the child's hand does not mean that we are, we are uh, changing in education. The structures are still there. So if we go back to the historical context of when school started, even before our country, it was for the elite. It was for the, the children of the white children. It was for children who didn't have disabilities. I had an aunt who never attended school because she had an intellectual delay. I never met her. She passed before I was born, but she was institutionalized. And we think about how much we have made progress, but boy, do we have so much more to go. And that's just one sector, right? That's just one piece of this giant puzzle that we've been talking about in this series, and we're going to continue to talk about in this series as we look at that socio-ecological model from the individual all the way out to the big picture. Yeah, so much there around, um, again, the socio-ecological model really highlighting the beliefs and values. Our beliefs and values are centered around children being seen and not heard. And so it, our structures do not uh, support us putting um, interventions and policies and norms in place to highlight um, children's voices. But, uh, and this is why we have to be careful. Um, if we were to snap our fingers and say, in schools, we're going to highlight children's voices, we would have to be aware that we would have to align our efforts with parents because are they getting that at home? And we need to be cautious because if parents are not on board and we um, push for, ch you know, children to exercise their voice and use their voice and then they go home and they have a parent who is not equipped to deal with a child who has voice, um, then we, again, may be re-traumatizing or 
um, creating more conditions for abuse and neglect in the home. And so this is really what Bronfenbrenner was saying when he talked about this, this area, which is what he called the mesosystem, is how these different smaller systems, microsystems interact. And, um, and this is uh, where we essentially get the beginnings of the school to prison pipeline, uh, because we have a mismatch between the home and, and the schools. And when we have that, um, then it becomes an issue of um, abuse and neglect in one or both of these settings. Uh, a perfect example of that would be uh, children who are being spanked at home. Um, and people don't like to talk about spanking. So I would like to be very clear that spanking is not abuse everywhere. <laughs> um, spanking is not considered abuse, but um, it is physical punishment. And so children who are experiencing physical punishment at home um, or yelling, um, when they get to school and they have a teacher who has a soft voice and hopefully teachers who will not put their hands on them, they're going to have issues with that transition from home to school in their behavior because these two settings don't match up because at school, I have the teacher with the soft voice that's saying, don't do that, Bobby, don't do, you know, and then at home, I have a parent who's yelling at me, be physical with me. Um, and when I'm in the school setting as a child, I'm not going to know that my behavior is out of control because all the cues that go along with me understanding that are not there. The yelling, the getting physical, or the spanking is not there. And so um, this then leads to teachers and administrators labeling children um, with, with any variation of, um, you know, either mental illness like ADHD or conduct disorder, all the way to um, there being purposefully, um, you know, defiant or, um, or sassy or have an attitude. And so these, this mismatch can then have that children, that child labeled and experiencing, um, you know, all the different ways that we punish children in schools, um, which then may lead to them having, you know, issues of attendance, expulsion. And, and then this leads to poor school outcomes, all because these two areas are not aligned and, um, and that the child is really getting very different messages when they're encountering the school setting. And this leaves that child subject to the institutions that are, that are coming up, um, our, our juvenile justice system, our criminal justice system, um, child welfare, and, and things of that nature. I mean, I can't wait to come back from break in that. I, I want to dig in more to that because fr you definitely have my head. I, I got a lot of thoughts and spinning and I, I can't wait to hear and have a conversation about how do we navigate that? So if educators, because that is complex, right? And I have, I have, and I, I became amazing uh, an acquaintance of this parent who brought her spatula into the school and was going to the room because she got called. And the conversation we had was one that she would bring up all of the time. And, and it was about, hey, I understand, but that can't happen here, right? And let me explain why. And, and we used to talk, we talked all the time about it. And she said, even, I, I, okay, Portel, I'm going to try, right? So, I mean, at, at the end of the day, there's so much to unpack and, and we only are having this conversation for an hour and then next week, another hour um, with, with Judge Calloway about the ju judicial uh, system and how that works. 
But nonetheless, we're going to take a very quick little break. And when we come back, we are definitely going to discuss all of the pieces that we just stopped with and so much more. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In this polarizing age of misinformation, it is critical to examine the lessons of the past on history, culture, and trauma. Ingrid Cochran, CEO of Paces Connection, and her guests will explore historical trauma and outline how our collective past shades our perception of today's world and our shared experiences. In this podcast, we will examine the impact of past atrocious cultural events and the impact of the systemic trauma of racism and poverty on the human experience. Ingrid and her guest will also outline what is needed for our collective healing. Please join us for History, Culture, and Trauma, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran. Thank you for joining us. This is Ingrid Cochran. Um, In our first half, we really talked about um, how the social ecological model is a great way to view uh, how community um, influences can shape a child's uh, development over time and definitely um, either increase or decrease the likelihood of that child experiencing uh, child abuse or neglect. Um, For the second half, we're going to talk about what the drivers are when it comes to the community influences. And I know that me and Matthew have had conversations about this before in other settings, but there's so much there when we when we talk about institutions and how they influence communities. Um, definitely in our discussions in our first part, we talked about Bronfenbrenner's social ecological model along with the Rise Center and their adaptation. Um, but what we talked about really was that each of these different spheres influences the other. And so families make up communities and communities are then impacted by policy. Um, so bad policy can, can make um, communities the source of toxic stress um, and put stress on families and children. And there's so many bad policies <laughs> in, this, in this discussion. And um, when we talk about the community level, 
um, so much of it is about the built environment. And so, um, you know, at the community level, policies just determine everything from if we decide to run a highway through your community or if you have higher levels of air pollution, noise pollution, uh, if you're next to a plant that's uh, polluting the soil and your food, all the way to issues of segregation uh, and redlining and housing discrimination, all of that is baked into policy. Uh, and and I know, Matthew, you, you definitely want to talk about schools and their policies and, and, and how the institution of education uh, is impacted by policy. But uh, some policies we tend to not think are negative, but still have um, negative impact. And so when we talk about policy, it's good to talk about the difference between what actually happens versus the intentions. Um, one of those is uh, the way that we view crime in this country. And so we have areas that have higher levels of crime, and we believe that um, issues of crime are due to issues of poor morality um, or culture. Uh, I have, with my own ears, heard uh, in, in the media, uh, and I mean like um, newscasters saying things like, uh, black people have a culture of criminality. Uh, and, and this is very interesting to me because um, especially if we think about kind of our current situation with movements like defund the police as in response to police brutality, um, there's a clear narrative that is um, supporting that black people um, are, are, are more likely to be criminal, not because of the structures in place, but because of their kind of innate or this belief in genetic race, right? That, that because your skin is darker, you're more likely to commit a crime. This is what we have here. As opposed to knowing the real history, which is that laws have been put in place to make having black skin criminal uh, in the past. Um, our, you know, if we look at the history books and look at the progression of policies around race uh, at a time when you could make policies that were explicit to race, like the Chinese Exclusion Act uh, or what we call the Black Codes, which were policies that came um, after the emancipation of slaves that made it illegal to be Black, basically. <laughs> uh, and, and so these policies have created a history along with beliefs and values that are associated with that and have shaped communities, who's allowed in the community, who can afford to live in the community, um, issues of redlining and housing discrimination, um, and all of these other um, policies that have really, really impacted us, even the, those that we think are positive. And, and I know one of our first conversations, Matthew, was around um, the uh, whether or not segregation and the civil rights movement push for integration was a, was a good thing. And we can say it was a mixed bag. Um, there were uh, a number of negative um, things that happened after the push for integration. One of those being that Black children were now in hostile environments in schools, um, that that integration um, those children going to school was met with very clear violence and hostility, um, along with the fact that they were then being compared 
to um, white children when it came to their outcomes, their uh, IQ, standardized testing, even though they were obviously at a disadvantage due to America's you know, education system at the time. Um, and so it, we really have to think about how policies have shaped our communities and what that looks like when it comes to the level of abuse and neglect or um, the, the lessened likelihood of abuse and neglect that a child will experience. Well, and, and I think, too, I even go back to I, the first episode that you did, and it was about the power of media, right? And, and we, we think about the role that the media plays in these systems, too, even in the – because these most of these – if you're watching local news, it's from your local community. And I, it goes to me to think I, – I did attend Tennessee State University, um, which is an HBCU. And, yes, I am a white man that went to an HBCU. Um, and it was on purpose, honestly. Uh, but but I, I saw a news story about a, a, something that happened close to TSU. And of all the things in that area, they only highlighted two things, TSU and a very popular Black-owned restaurant and business. And that was the context that they gave to what happened in that general area. And I thought, but there's so much more in that area. But then it automatically made me like, oh, my goodness. Again, you got to look at these, maybe it's, it's implicit, maybe it's explicit, right? But nonetheless, it, it, it exists. So we have to talk about these pieces in the context of even the media and how that they portray our communities. But yes, getting into the policy pieces, I even think about when I was a kid and I remember the Say No to Drugs campaign, right? And And how, I mean, who's going to say, Oh, yeah, no, you need to say yes to drugs, right? So, again, a, a, something that appeared on the very surface as having good intention, but once you start digging into who's being impacted, why it was started, the ramifications of, the, um, of, of incarceration, you realize, wait a minute, and, and let's take that same thing and let's go into schools because the same things are happening, right? The zero tolerance that we mentioned earlier, the expulsion and seclusion of kids, right? Predominantly black and brown kids by predominantly white uh, administrators, to be quite honest. Um, so we've got to think about all of these different pieces and how they play out. And I think conversation is simply just the start. Policy change is what we have to continue to push for. And I think that there have been, right? And there has been things that have occurred, um, but boy, has the pushback come so hard. I even think about what you said about, you know, the protests and the hostile environments that, that black and brown kids had to come in after the integration. I think about right now, Ingrid, the laws that are being made in where the history of our black and brown kids is being pushed and fought against and the hostility that must feel as a child to not really know what you what your historical context is from school. You, you have to learn it from home and generations where it should be part of who we are as a culture. Um, and yes, bad things happened. And my son and I talk about those bad things. Matter of fact, he asked me the other day, he said, Dad, what is this whole thing that they don't want us talking about history? And of course, he probably heard me talking about it. But I said, well, what do you think about it? He said, well, how can we do something different if we don't know what we've done wrong in the past? And I went, okay, he's 11. Um, he has no college degree, right? He's not a politician. 
but policy continues to drive uh, the suppression of people, right? I mean, that's what it is. Um, and it's this upholding of systems that have been designed to do just that. And I think we've got to, we've got to come with outcomes, right? So, um, again, I think that's why we're having this podcast. I think it's why we're having conversations with all the people we're having is what are the outcomes? How can we shift? Um, and how can we take history, culture, uh, and trauma and learn from it? Yeah, I, you bring up a great point when it comes to this discussion around critical race theory in schools. You know, when it comes to public schools, a great deal of them are parents of color. And so really, who are we prioritizing uh, in these conversations um, when we say we don't want certain types of discussions to happen in schools? There's a lot of black and brown parents who do who do want those conversations to happen in school or in the ones that don't really don't trust the school system to have the conversation really not. It's not that they don't want the history discussed, uh, but the history is very important. And, and we have to really look at when policy goes wrong and how it impacts communities. Um, you brought up mass incarceration and the war on drugs. I mean, mass incarceration has has roots that began the first year that slavery ended. Uh, it's not a new phenomenon. And it was really about, um, again, control. Um, and that still is pervasive today in how we um, view children um, and their abilities um, to speak up for themselves or to defend themselves, or we just don't see people, I mean, we don't see children as people. Um, we see them in need of, of being controlled, especially if they're black or brown, uh, and we do not promote voice. And in the community setting, this allows for abuse and neglect to to run rampant. And, and that's where we are in our country right now. We have a child abuse crisis. When you look at the numbers around abuse, um, it's extremely pervasive with the one that's most pervasive is is the um, sexual abuse of African-American indigenous girls. We're talking one in three. Um, and then when we look at physical abuse, we're talking one in four. So these are, these are high numbers. And this is driving um, poor health in our, in our populace, not just, um, you know, not when we just look at race. When we're talking about race and poverty, what we're talking about the disparities that exist. Um, but we also have to look at rural areas um, who are also, because of isolation, experiencing rampant um, abuse and neglect as well. And that's manifesting in our opioid crisis. And it also is manifesting in lots of poor outcomes for rural areas across the board. We are not having these real conversations um, because it's kind of a double-edged sword. We don't want to be very explicit and say poor white communities have poor outcomes because um, first, it doesn't fit this narrative that, that only black and brown communities have disparate um, outcomes. Um, so there's that. And then it also doesn't fit the narrative that historical trauma is only impacting black and brown people. Historical trauma is, is impacting white communities, um, especially those who have experienced generational poverty. 
and it often manifests in higher rates of racism, uh, right? And so, um, which is really rooted and grounded in this ideology that um, people of color are, are taking something from them. Um, this is passed along through generations. Um, it is just as harmful as um, black and brown parents telling their child that they have to work harder and be better um, if they want to survive in the racist system. Uh, on the other end, you have um, white parents, especially white parents living in poverty, telling this narrative to their children that this other group is taking something from them. Uh, and this is perpetuating this uh, ideology that we are at odds with each other, even though we're experiencing the same poor outcomes from the same source, uh, which is this the system that we have that not just uh, is impactful on people of color, but also people who are living in poverty in general, um, as it perpetuates the idea that the white wealthy um, uh, children and families are more important than, than everyone else. Um, and it is really um, something that we really need to have better conversations around, um, but we've kind of painted ourselves into a corner with the, this discussion of race in this country. Well, and I think what I hear is the exploitation of people um, in general, right? Um, of course, we understand race plays a major role. Poverty plays a major role. Race and poverty play a major role, but the exploitation comes down to it's what drives what the system, it, it drives the system, right? And I just wonder, right? And I think we all can wonder and hope if this, if we could become in a space where we could have these conversations, right? I don't know if that's, that. I hope one day that those can happen, but the polarization that has occurred is so far pushed to the sides that these conversations are so challenging to have with in multiple spaces because um, like you said, you have to work harder so you can succeed. There were, they're taking our jobs. I heard it. I just heard it literally um, this last week about the immigrant population of that. They're, they're taking our jobs, right? We, we heard that for years. And so this perpetuation continues to this day. And it's just uh, as much as, as we see have changed, so much has not changed. And so I think that's what, that's what we, we've got to strive, right? We've got to have these conversations in spaces where we see the commonality, but yet understand the historical context because people are not thriving. Um, there are a subset of people that that would quote unquote, and you and I have had these conversations, uh, a anthropological question of what is being civilized, right? But what in, in Western ideals and American ideals are thriving, um, a lot of people relate that to being rich, right? And that may not be thriving, but ideally that's what people see. But I think if we could just see, okay, I understand what you're doing and you're going through this and you've been through this and historically your community has done this, we have too. So how can we demand and require change based off of us knowing the historical context, um, which is to me why we probably want to keep history in the way that it has been written. Um, and that's incorrectly. Yeah. And this makes me think about, you know, what are the solutions uh, in this area, in the community space? 
And what it really is going to focus on is these types of conversations. Um, when we've talked about what is the solution, um, the ability to have conversations that bring us to an understanding in the middle ground. Um, and we, like I said, we've painted ourselves into a corner when it comes to uh, our ability to have these conversations, uh, especially in public or professional spaces with cancel culture and the uh, liability that comes along with HR practices and even kind of, you know, the, the push for equality in the civil rights movement as opposed to equity. And people really struggle with that. We want to go for equality right now. And that sounds great in our minds, right? It's like, oh, everyone is equal, but our environment is not there yet. And so we are gaslighting ourselves and our children in this area. And if we are able to have real conversations, we would say that we, there's, we have to look at how we can, um, you know, go through a process of reconciliation. And so if there is an obvious poor treatment of rural areas with the lack of access um, and the lack of uh, resources, even right here locally, we're struggling with rural areas uh, because of hospital closures, so poor health care. Um, and then if we know for sure that there is a very clear history of racism, uh, and we know for sure that we have a very clear history of how we've treated children in this country. I mean, we had uh, laws to protect livestock before we had laws to protect children. Um, we've had, you know, child labor in the past. And so what does it look like to have equity in this issue? How do we make amends for the past? Uh, and it's not equal. It's going to be certain groups getting more um, uh, having more access, um, being uplifted. Uh, and this, this would be problematic at this stage. There was just uh, not too long ago um, legislation to support Black farmers. And that resulted in a lawsuit um, because white farmers believed it to be discriminatory. And so this is kind of where we are. We, we can't have these conversations because um, that would mean that it, it would not be equal that we would have to give more uh, and think through what it means to have restitution. Um, and when we talk about how we treat um, people living with poverty, how we treat people with disabilities, how we treat um, black, indigenous, Latino children um, in all aspects of our society, when it comes to policy, when it comes to the media, um, that's when we understand that as we have the, these different attacks on these groups, that we are also attacking their children, um, that those children are not in a vacuum, that the way that you see um, adult Black men is going to impact the development of a Black child. Um, the way that we think through issues when it comes to um, uh, Middle Eastern children, Middle Eastern families, people who have different religions, xenophobia, um, that, is that is definitely impacting their children, uh, immigrant children. Uh, there's no disconnect there. Um, we can't say we love children 
and also be racist and homophobic, uh, xenophobic, uh, or sexist or support rape culture. We can't say we love children and, and not see how these conditions we're creating then impact a child's development. You know, I, I know that to be true and for a lot of levels. And I, I will share one very quick story. I know we don't have a lot of time, but when I was a fourth grade teacher, I taught non-English speaking students. Um, and it was during the English only debate uh, with here in, in, in Tennessee and in Nashville. And I just let the kids write about it. And did they not only understand it, but they felt the hurt from it. And they were nine years old. And so these weren't conversations that adults had them, had with them. It was simply they were sucking in this information, processing it through their nine-year-old brain, and then producing their own identity. And it, they felt it reflected them as a human being. And so if we think that kids are isolated from not just are, are getting, uh, experiencing trauma or adversity from home, then we're missing the mark um, because adversity Yes, can happen at home, but equally as impactful, it's happening in the community. It's happening in the structures and systems. It's happening in the core beliefs of who we say we are and what we have shown our kids, our communities, um, of what we think, right, as a country, each of those layers going down to that ecological, socio-ecological system. And so I can't wait. Uh, and Ingrid and I are looking forward to next week uh, speaking to Judge Callaway as we talk more about um, the culture of child abuse in this country and how that systems and structures, uh, particularly the juvenile justice system and, uh, and, and other departments in that area, uh, how they play out this same narrative. So uh, thank you all for listening and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to the show today. We hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience. Join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you a beautiful week.